All right, with going with the theme of walking in obedience, I have the opportunity to introduce a man, a man who walks in obedience. He is a very magnanimous man. Um, <laughs> um, he is my favorite guy. He's tall, dark, because he gets more sun, um, and handsome, and I love him. I'm smitten with him. He gave me his last name, and he co-authored five beautiful children. But um, personal effects aside, let's just talk about um, why he's here, because he's been called, and now he's walking in obedience, and he's, um, he's got a great word from God, and let me tell you, um, it's been a challenge this week, but I believe that he has got a word from God that's going to touch your heart, and um, I just want to welcome him, but before we do, I've got like this little neat thing to kind of boost his energy, and so um, since we're in the series of doors, we'll just do this little game. Knock, knock. Woo! Hey, Mike! How about that? Well, I have a knock-knock joke of my own, but it's only for Sherry. Knock-knock. <laughs> Who's there? Olive. Olive who? Olive you. <laughs> All right, I forgot myself there. Got to get ready. Oh, good morning. How about that worship? We are in this series called Doors. And uh, I, I like to eat, and my family likes to eat. And Friday night we were out, and uh, we had just come back from a funeral, so we talked a lot about what's going on today, um, what's coming up. And just through the, through the talk, uh, my son Jack said, you know, um, the Bible is a door. And I'm like, that is awesome, but it's too much for me to cover. Uh, actually, I, I will take that back. I was going to cover the whole Bible. I told some friends Thursday night that I was going to cover the whole Bible today, and they're like, you're crazy. I know they were thinking, we pray, don't let him do it. But I do have a verse that uh, incorporates eating and doors. How about that? So we're going to start there. Uh, Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, there's a lot in there, and I'm going to unpack this over the course of this message. But I have a sub-theme or a subtitle that I want you to pick up on. The word and obedience together are your door to life. Let's pray. Lord, I come to you, we all come to you. We ask your blessing on our hearts, our minds, that we hear, that we feel, that we experience you, your speaking, your, your message for us today. And it's going to have multiple applications for each one of us. I ask your blessings through us, through those that aren't here, that if they hear the podcast, that it will touch them, that your will, word will not go out and come back void. We ask this all in Jesus' name. All right. I want to set the stage for, for us, for the significance of today, of this time, uh, of us as individual believers, and of, the, of our lives within, as the roles that we have with those around us. This passage comes from Revelations. It's chapter 3. 
And I know a lot is said about the difficulty in studying Revelations, but we're going to keep it pretty straightforward, and so, so there's no need to worry that we're getting into Revelations. We won't get into too much of the prophecy, and we'll stick to the, the first three chapters. And these chapters are, are letters that John wrote to churches, the seven churches in the area. And if you can picture the, the Mediterranean Sea, you, you've got Israel over on this lower side. Up in the middle uh, is Greece and Athens, and then there's this waterway, part of the Mediterranean, and that's where the island of Patmos was. Well, then over to the right was this Asia Minor area that was uh, growing, but there were cities there, and some of them were very prosperous and some were not so prosperous. So he wrote letters to these. There were actual churches in real cities. And you may have realized this already, or you may learn this, but the more you grow in your faith and, the, and you study the Word of God, you'll find that God in his omniscience will provide us information that has multiple applications. And I'm going to say that a bunch of times, multiple times. He'll give us one truth, so there's not more than one truth. There's one truth, but it applies differently for each one of us, and that's his design. Okay, so these first three chapters were inspired by Jesus. They were revealed to him, but they were written down by John and then delivered by messengers to each of the churches. And the way I described it, if you look at the map, the cities go in order. So a messenger would naturally be able to hit one and then go to the next. Well, they, only, they got the one that was addressed to them, but they got to see what was going on in the other churches too, what they were doing well and what they were being warned to do better and how God was going to help them. So I want you to grab onto that and hold on to it as we go through this. So the first letter, it starts in chapter 2, and it was to the church in Ephesus, the people, the Ephesians, the letter to Ephesians, but this is a letter in Revelation, the book of Revelation, to the church in Ephesus, and it commends them for their hard work and their perseverance. They had endured hardships in Christ's name, but he says they have lost their first love, and he exhorts them to repent and do the things that they first did. You see, as the church had grown, it had, had, uh, had been established for quite a while, the church founders had passed on. And this next generation, they were still going through the same motions, and they were still persevering, but they lost the love of Christ. And he's exhorting them to go back and find their first love. So this is the reason for their, the real reason that they should persevere, that they should do the work that they were doing. The second letter was to the church in Smyrna. And this church was poor. It was persecuted from the Jewish non-Christian community, but it was also persecuted from the people that were, were strict under Roman law. And they, they looked to the government for their answers or their authority. And he just simply encourages them to remain faithful through the persecution, even to the point of death, for he would give them a crown of life. See, Revelations is easy pretty simple. No, really, we take that encouragement, and even when we get down, we can take that to remain faithful because God's got this, and it may cost us our lives. It may cost us just exercising our free will, but he's, he will reward us. The third letter, it's written to the church at Pergamum. Yeah, it's up there, and there were four major Oh, let me back up. The city of Pergamum was full of worship. 
But it wasn't just Christianity. There were four major cults in this city and a lot of minor ones, a lot of different belief systems. So there was pressure to blend these faiths, and I think we can relate. If you're familiar with the coexist movement or the uh, idea that all religions actually lead to heaven or lead to, to Jesus, that was the kind of pressure that this church was under. So there can be cooperation with non-believers, and we, and we want that. We want to be among them to influence them, but we cannot set up alliances, we cannot partner with them, and we cannot participate in immoral practices. They must be avoided by us. So we have to make that distinction, be clear, but be gentle until we need to be firm. The, the warning here is to repent. So the church was experiencing this uh, complacency or this, this uh, compromise, and he's saying repent and turn to Jesus and, uh, and be able to identify the false teachers from Jesus' teachings. So that was the third church. The fourth church, this was a letter written to the church at Thyatira. And this church had been well established, but it had allowed immoral teachings to exist within its walls. So we went from the church in Smyrna, I mean, sorry, Pergamum, where it's the community really pushing on them, to the church in Thyatira, that it's inside the walls. And, and this immoral, immorality was of the sexual nature, and it had a terrible effect of eroding personal integrity. It, it created a lack of respect for everybody, and it also, um, it was like, it was the basis for a lack of self-discipline. People just didn't stand up and do what they knew was right. They weren't willing to stand up. He encourages this church to be faithful and to overcome. And in there, I, I wasn't trying to write this, but he's telling them, you know, the people that brought this to you, there's not a lot of hope for them. So you're going to need to leave them behind. And you're going to need to move forward. But if you're in the church and you're experiencing this, remain faithful and trust that God will bring you out of this. Now, the fifth letter was written to the church at Sardis. And this letter comes with no commendation. They weren't doing anything well. In fact, they had a good reputation of being active, but they were spiritually dead and they were infested with sin. And this is simple, and sometimes it has to come to this. He said, get your act together and become obedient to following Christ, period. That's all. There was no more words. They didn't do anything right. They were dead, and they just need to get straight or get gone. The sixth letter, and you'll recognize this city, was to the church at Philadelphia. Now, as we go around and we come up out of the Mediterranean Sea and you're going to all these cities and you go over the mountains, I don't know how high they are there, but they look like mountains on my map. And uh, so it's a frontier city that was established on that Asia Minor front. And it was less defended, so a little bit less of a stronghold, but it was this gritty, uh, newer, younger uh, community that, that was there to establish an existence. And the church had been established there, so those same types of people. And the problem was, is that it had been devastated by a major earthquake. And it continued to have aftershocks. So physically, in their day-to-day -day living, they were, there was an uncertainty in the way they lived, which rolled over into their spiritual life. There was this uncertainty, you know, is, is God or the God that's around us, whoever, is he going to protect us? So there's this uncertainty. But the Christians, the, the Christ followers, this letter encourages them to hold on to their faith as young believers in spite of the uncertainty and to trust that God would provide for them. 
So just like all these people in these various scenarios, we go through different times. And I think we can draw a strength and encouragement and understanding that, that God does this and he, think, he does things differently. Um, I thought about it with the church. I don't know that the church in Pergamum had an influence on the church in Philadelphia, but there was a relationship between those two cities, like people from Pergamum went to set up the city, to establish the city. So I envisioned people from the church in Pergamum, a mission congregation or a church at Philadelphia, if you will. And so there's different circumstances, so they can't just repeat the church at Philadelphia at uh, I mean, uh, yeah, Philadelphia, that was at Pergamum. They need to be differently. They need to understand and work from the Holy Spirit. All right, finally, the seventh church. This was the church of Laodicea. This was a very prosperous city. And the church had come, become complacent, though. They were neither hot nor cold in their faith. They were lukewarm. They had let material wealth and success become the main focus and allowed their faith to become weak and less important in their daily living. The warning given to this church was, because you are neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, we can, there's a lot of imagery there. I, I, I kind of pictured two. Uh, one, a picture of drink, it's very hot in the summer, and you want a, a cold glass of lemonade. I'll keep it clean here. And uh, we... You know, you get the lemonade, and you're looking for that refreshing, you know, cut through the sweat and, and the dust, and it's just a warm glass of lemonade. You just want to spit it out. That's not what you wanted. You don't want to waste your time on it. Or maybe this one will get you. Uh, you wake up in the morning, and you are used to that cup of coffee, and you're used to getting it made by the, your favorite barista, and they make it just the way you want it. It's not like anybody else's. It's perfect for you. But this day, you get it, and you take a drink, and it's just barely warm. It's, it's almost stagnant. It doesn't give you that refreshing or that energizing feeling, and you just want to spit it out. You don't want to be done with it. Well, imagine that attitude in the church, in the community, this leniency, this apathy, like we don't really care. We, you know, God just suggested that. He didn't really mean it. So that's going on in this church. And God tells John, tell this church, I'm going to spit them out. I'm not going to have anything to do with them. But there's hope. I showed you verse 19, or verse 20. Verse 19, the, the one before that, it comes from this letter to this church. It says, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. And then he goes on to say, here I am. I'm knocking. I'm standing here knocking on this door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. So there's still hope if you repent and turn to him and be obedient. Okay, I know history. I'm trying to make this exciting, but I know history can be boring. But when we look at it, that's his story, it's God's story, and how we get to be a part of it, we get to fit into it, it gets exciting. Revelation is a lot of prophecy, but those first three chapters, they happened. That's history. That is, that's new church. It was 2,000 years ago, and that took place. And we can learn from that, but the cool thing is it still applies today, and it's pointing us forward to the other 19 chapters of Revelation that are still to come. Okay, I said earlier that God speaks and he reveals to us truths that had multiple application. So here it is. These churches were actual churches, 
but they apply to churches today. They still, that still goes on today. And it also applies to ages of the church. So if you think back and if we were to study church history, we would be able to see times, and there are places now that go through, um, they kind of lost their first love and they get away from the real reason that they're doing what they're doing. They're into uh, rituals now and they need to get back to why they do what they do and maybe change those rituals uh, or we get to churches that are going through huge persecution and we still have that in the african church in the china church the, there's huge growth there because they're applying god's truths and they're coming out of that well these uh, uh churches i think we can look at today the culture in america we're probably in this we can make a case that we're in this age of Laodicea here, this lukewarm faith. We see apathy towards biblical marriage. We see a very, very little sense of a sanctity of life. Life just doesn't matter. If, it, if it's not important to us, we could say it doesn't matter. Go on, do whatever you want to do. There's a strong sense of entitlement or personal rights at, at any cost. We don't care what it costs somebody else. We want our personal rights. Or there's very little knowledge and understanding of God's word. So I really feel like we're in that age as a culture, not this church, but as a culture, we're in that Laodicean attitude then. So we cannot be lukewarm. We must get hot about our faith. It has to impact every area of our day-to-day. Our faith drives our worldview, and that drives our decisions, and it will set the tone Oh, I'm sorry, and, and it drives our reactions, and it'll drive all of our relationships. It's how we interact with people, that worldview. So we have to be hot about it. From, this is my wife's pocket, from the Genesis to Revelation, we have to be hot about it, every word in there. So what's that mean for you, me and you in our lives? I'm going to ask you to hold that thought right there, and I'm going to do a, a little bit of a paraphrase or a road a detour here. Um, in Acts 12, uh, Herod's getting crazy here, and this is, it's Passover time, and, and this is, uh, uh, he's just killed James, and he's getting ready to, he finds Peter, and he wants to put him in prison, and, and like I said, it's Passover, so there's this, I, I am envisioning a spiritual battle going on. Uh, he puts Peter in prison, and he's going to make sure he does not escape because he really wants to execute him, but he's going to wait till after Passover. So he puts him in prison. He's bound by chains. He's got a, a guard on each side. There are sentries posted at the door, and the, the gate is locked. He doesn't want him to get out. He's taking every precaution. Meanwhile, over at Mary's house, there's this prayer meeting going on, and they're praying, one, for Peter to be released, but for this persecution to stop. So overnight, an angel comes, and, and the chains fall off. Uh, he walks out of the prison. The gate just opens. It's unlocked. He's out, and he's not even sure what's going on because this is unreal. He's walking along, and he realizes that God has just set him free. So he makes his way over to Mary's house, and they're, they're just continually in prayer. Knocks on the door. Servant girl Rhoda comes and recognizes it's his voice, and she doesn't even open the door. She's so excited and blown away that she runs to tell the group. And they're like, no, you're crazy. You're out of your mind, and just go away. And she keeps coming, and he keeps knocking. And she says, they say to her, that must be an angel of Peter, not really him. They're praying for his release. So what are they expecting? You know, uh, 
it says that they were astonished when they finally did open the door and it's him. And this is my point. What do we think of God when we pray to him? Don't we think that he's going to do what we're asking him for? Let's get to that point. All right. So Peter was saved and came to them just as they had been praying, but they were in disbelief and they were astonished. I don't know, really, it doesn't say if that was the root of their astonishment, but I get that feeling when I read it. So do we act like this? Do we have lukewarm prayers? Do we have mediocre expectations for God? When we have prayed for people for healing in our church, and I don't even know, I don't want to talk about the outcome, but when we pray to this God, the God of, the, of everything, the creator and the sustainer, do we know that? Do we expect him to answer in a way that's bigger than what we can even comprehend? Do we trust him enough to pray and let him answer? Because what we think is healing may not be the healing that we get, but he knows better. And just last night, this verse uh, Sherry actually brought up to me. We were talking, Ephesians 3.20. If you speak in this way, the way this verse is, is, is written, it brings glory to God no matter what the outcome is. And I'm going to read it to you. And this is uh, dark up here. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So let that be. Let that be our attitude. Let that be the way we speak. This is the God of the universe, and we just get to go along for the ride. He wants us along for the ride. He wants to share and relate to life with us. All right, so let's go back. So we've got that attitude, this prayer, Peter being released. This is the way I want this awe to come in. When we put this awe back into the understanding of God and his kingdom and the way that we, we do this, we, we reestablish or establish, if we haven't done it yet, these practices that create a passion for Christ. And they are prayer and worship, their obedience their fellowship with each other, and their service to each other. So we do that. We pray with each other. We pray for each other. We pray ahead of time. We pray continually. We worship. We worship corporately here, and it's awesome. But we need to worship elsewhere, on our own, in our families. We need to worship. And that can be at these meals. It is an amazing, powerful tool to eat together, eat with your neighbors, bring them over or go to their house or go out to eat and talk to them about this stuff. All right. So when I was uh, discussing this series initially, I was envisioning more of a, a, a personal level, an instruction at a personal level, and I want each of us to consider our own faith. Are we hot or are we cold or are we lukewarm? Are we just you know, trying to, yeah, I know what God demands, but there's a lot of pressure, you know, on the outside and my family, they all do things differently. We can't be lukewarm. We have to be hot 
and with respect to God, with respect to his word, and with respect to our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, as I think about this, I want you to consider these various areas of your life and how you approach them. And there's a lot in this old approach. So what, what do we start with, our mindset, our attitude, as we approach these relationships? So with family and friends, these neighbors, this is where we begin to exercise our worldview. So you got daily time spent with family, friends, or relatives. If you look back at that verse 20, the last part of it, and I've said it several times, this image of eating together, it has a huge impact. Are we helping through our daily living to instill a sense of awe for God in those around us and in our circles of influence? How about our areas of, I'll say dreams or desires, but I think that ought to be our work and our hobbies. Those should equate to each other. Our dreams and their desires should be our work and our hobbies. Our work we get paid for, the hobbies we just do because we've got time and we can afford to. But they should be driven from our dreams and our desires. And if we understand that God gave us those, then we'll give that glory back to him. And others are going to see it. How about our roles? And, and I'm, I'm big into roles because I want people to own where they're at and what, who's following them. And I think normally about leaders, but in God's kingdom, a leader is a servant with a powerful position or a more powerful position. You're not there to rule with an iron thumb. You're there to help build somebody or bring them along as a leader. And on conversely, the, the follower, the team member, the employee, you're not there just to get paid or to get credit for being on that team. You're there to do the absolute best job you can do, to execute faithfully, and to encourage, encourage those around you on your team, and encourage that leader and kind of keep him honest. He needs feedback. So wherever you're at, a leader or a follower, God's got a job for you. And then this favorite one of mine, this family, this father or mother. Now, when I write this, I write father and mother. And uh, when I read it, I get great feedback. So my wife and my daughter said, you know what? The word daddy, can't even say it, <laughs> or mama convey a relationship that is what God means for us. That's how we work together. That's how we share. That's how we relate with each other when we are in relationship. And we get to use family as a platform for the gospel. I, I taught a whole book with Sherry this summer on the family being a platform for the gospel. And there's enough there. Every day there's something more you can do to show how God has worked in your life or is working in your life to redeem you, to sanctify you, to make you more holy and set apart. There is so much on that. Okay, we started out talking about these seven letters to churches. And that, that was for the church model, and we can get a lot out of that. But there are also over 20 letters to us individually. There, throughout the New Testament, there are letters that are written, and they're to help us. They're to individuals. They encourage us to be uh, compassionate, to show kindness, to be humble, to show meekness and patience. There are letters to couples. You know, the wives and husbands and wives work together, and we, we run away from that word submit, but it means submit to Christ. 
And yeah, there's a, there's a role of authority there, but I already talked about that. That leader is there to serve. So it's not a scary role. And that's how, and there are letters that explain this to us in the word of God. He's given that to us. There are letters to families on how to relate. You know, fathers and, and sons and daughters, the children, how we relate to each other. I don't have a lot of time to go into all those, but I just want you to consider this. Your job is to prepare your children for the path, not to prepare the path for the children. We need to set them up and send them off. If they go out with God's word, it will not come back void. It will change. The word workplace, that's another location. There are letters that tell us how to act in the workplace as a Christ follower. Whatever you do, do it heartily for the Lord and not for men. I'm going to start to wrap up here. There are a lot of these verses, but I just picked a couple here. And Colossians 4, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 is one example. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I want you to envision... There's a Proverbs, and I can't remember what it was, but it tells you to do two different things with the same person, with the fool. One of them you answer him, and the other one you don't. That's what being in relationship with Christ is like. One day you may answer one person one way, and the same question you may answer another person a different way because they need something different. But if you're in tune with the Holy Spirit, you're prepared. It uses the word salt in there. Salt is a seasoning that brings out the flavor. It's, it's not necessarily the flavor itself that you're looking for. It's you want it to bring the flavor out of something. So when we use salt in our lives, it brings out what's meant to be, what God's designed for our lives to be. All right, another verse, 1 Peter 3.15. I know a lot of you are familiar with at least the last half of this. The always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Hopefully they see that hope in you. But I have underlined, I think, the most significant part. In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, the Lord as holy. We have to do that first. It has to be that order. We don't get to go out until we know why we're going out. So when we know that Christ is holy, that he's the reason that we do what we do, then we'll know the reason why it looks like we have a hope in us and people can ask us and we'll know how he has worked in our lives so we'll be ready to tell them how he's worked in our lives. We need to do this with gentleness and respect. They need to come to us, see it, and then ask for it and we give it to them. Let's learn God's word. Let's be in relationship with Jesus and let's listen to the Holy Spirit. When we hear him knocking and the door and we open it, he'll be with us and we'll be with him. To God be all the glory. Amen.